Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm a Christian, and this is my story. Growing up, I never missed going to church. When I was 12, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I, I was even baptized. It, it undoubtedly was a very important decision. It even affected how I lived in high school. I mean, don't get me wrong, I. I had fun on the weekends. I had a girlfriend, a couple, but I was a normal high school kid. College was one big blur, but I did make it to church out of obedience. And after school, I married a great girl, and she's been a great influence on me. Life's been good. I have a house, three kids. I couldn't ask for more. I mean, sure, I worry about my future. I mean, my marriage, it could be better. And I need to spend more time with my kids, but, but things will be all right. I have my faith. You may not hear me talk about it a lot, but that's, that's just because it's personal. But don't worry for me. My Jesus is real. My Jesus is a plastic Jesus. I watched that video earlier this week and I thought, you know what? That is probably true for unfortunately too many Americans, too many people in our country and probably too many people in our circle of influence. Um, but it's been a few weeks. It's been a few weeks since I've been here and um, I told Bob, I said, I'm loaded for bear. I am ready to go. But I'll try to keep it in the time frame. Um, I thought, as I was preparing, I thought that we were going to finish chapter 7 today. I thought we were going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. But as I got into it, we're not going to finish it today. <laughs> we're going to have one more week in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know about you guys, I have really enjoyed our time in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the greatest sermon ever preached. And Jesus has been delivering this to his disciples with the crowds listening in and you know, as I was putting this together, these last three messages, the last two that I did, and then this one today, are probably the most important messages that I will ever preach. And maybe I'll get a chance to do them again, hopefully not. Maybe I'll get a chance to do them again, but they are the most important, they're the most crucial, because it is giving you guys exactly what you need, the most relevant information that I can possibly give you, and that's how to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've given this one a real subtle title, Are You Really Saved? Okay? Because normally what I like to do, I try to find a kitschy title, you know, something catchy. I'd like to be creative, um, use a little wordplay. But oftentimes what happens is sometimes the meat of the message can get lost in my cuteness and trying to come up with a fun little message. And so I made this one really easy. Are you really saved? This is the clincher. This is what Jesus has been leading up to this whole Sermon on the Mount. This is the jumping off point. What are you going to do with the information that you now know about the kingdom? So just a warning ahead of time. This is not a popular message. It's not a popular message. I don't know how often, I don't know how often I've heard anything like this before. Um, but that's okay because it wasn't popular in Jesus' day either. It wasn't popular in his day. It's not popular in our day either. So since it's been a few weeks, let's review. Uh, Jesus starts to compare and contrast the way the world works with God's kingdom. He says, this is the way human religion works goes, okay? It's the gospel of human achievement. And he compares that to the way God's economy operates, divine accomplishment. And he says, there are two paths. There's only two. There's always ever been just two. Uh, there is the narrow path and there's the wide path. Both paths claim to lead to heaven. One of them does not have a sign over it saying destruction. They both say they're going to heaven, but Jesus says one of them ends up in hell. 
The narrow path leads through Jesus himself. He, is, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a very exclusive, very narrow statement. People can't just like Jesus and think that he was you know, a good prophet or a good teacher because he said there is only one way to God and it's through me. It's exclusive. And he tells his disciples, you need to strive to enter through the narrow gate. You have to be diligent in searching for it. It's not easy. If somebody told you that following Jesus was going to make your life easier, they lied to you, okay? And they're on the wide path. Following Jesus does not mean that your life is going to be easier. Jesus says the narrow way is hard. He says the easy way is the way that leads to destruction. That is the wide path. Now, why is the narrow path hard? Well, first, it's because you have to go through alone. You have to go through the narrow path by yourself. It's more like a turnstile, right? You can't go through with somebody else. You can only go through single file. You can't ride in on somebody else's coattails. It can't be your grandmother's faith. can't be your parents' faith. can't even be your spouse's faith. can't look at them and say, well, they go to church pretty consistently. They read their Bibles. They seem to pray. I think I'm in a good place. It has to be each person's decision personally. People like the wide path because there's room for all of the people that they like. There's room for all of the people that they like on the wide path. There's room for many religions. They say all religions lead to God as long as you're sincere. As long as you're serious about it and you do it with a genuine heart, you'll get to God. Each person has to travel their own religious spiritual journey and then they will find God. That's the wide path. That's what Jesus says. Second, you can't take any baggage with you. You have to get rid of every sin, every attachment, every act of self-righteousness, all your earthly attachments, all of that stuff you have to get rid of. You have to go through alone. One of the reasons why people prefer the wide path is because there's room for their little sins or their acts of piety that make them feel better about themselves. For, for self-indulgence and living their best life now, um, anything that starts with self, anything that's centered on self finds its way on the wide path. Jesus told his disciples, he said, unless you hate your family, unless you hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. People didn't understand that. That is difficult to hear. But what he meant was your devotion to him needs to be so real, so deep, so devoted in the world's eyes, when they look at you because you're so narrow-minded, they think, don't you even care about the people around you? Like, you're so focused on Jesus, so laser-focused on him, it has to look to the world like we must hate everything else, that we don't care about ourselves because we're so focused on Jesus. His way is narrow. Two paths and then true trees. Jesus moves from paths to people, and he says there are two trees, and they represent teachers. One is a false teacher, and one is the true teacher. You have two groups of people standing outside of these paths trying to get you to go in. Okay, some are false teachers, some are two two true teachers. And they are spreading the gospel. One is the gospel of human achievement. Your goods, your deeds, the good things you do are going to merit you into heaven. You can earn your way in. Or is the gospel, or there is the gospel of divine accomplishment. It's already been done. There is nothing that you can do. God's already provided a way. You just have to believe in him. That is the narrow gate. Every other religion, every other religion, including false Christianity, finds its way on the false path, the wide path. Anything that you can do in human achievement, do good works and you can enter your way into heaven. Jesus called these teachers wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like shepherds, but instead of feeding the sheep and directing them towards the narrow gate, they're actually fleecing the sheep and fattening them up from slaughter, directing them towards the wide gate. Jesus tells us that we'll know who these people are. We'll know these wolves in sheep clothing by their fruit. We look at their lives. When it comes to teachers, guys, we have to be fruit inspectors. Do these people practice what they preach? Do they have the fruit of the Spirit evident in their lives? Are they seeking to glorify God and help people follow him? Or are they more interested in developing their own following on social media? 
Are they more interested in that or are they more interested in God's glory? So when it comes to teachers, we're to be fruit inspectors. We're to use discernment so that we're not led astray. And you can only use discernment. You can only judge rightly if you know the word of God. If you don't know the Bible, how are you going to know what you're being fed is right or accurate or if you're going to be led astray? How do you know that this preacher isn't deceiving you? Um, There's no excuse for us, especially here in America, to be ignorant of the scriptures. And if you don't like reading, you see, Nathan, it's hard for me to read. You can have James Earl Jones read you the Bible on your phone. Does it get much better than that? I mean, if you don't like reading, you can listen to that. There's no excuse to not know the scriptures. You don't have to have the whole thing memorized. That's not what we're talking about. But you have the scriptures. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you who is going to lead us into all truth and keep us from being deceived. And now Jesus reaches the conclusion of his message. He addresses the most serious form of deception, and that's self-deception. You see, if you're deceived, you can be corrected. But if you're deceiving yourself, you're in a very perilous place, one that very few people come back from. Because what they've done is they have surrounded themselves with people who tell them exactly what they want to hear. They have chosen the easy path. And because of that, they don't know the truth. They've deceived themselves into believing that they are actually saved. And this passage today, for me personally, is the scariest, most terrifying verses in the whole Bible. You can disagree, but you would be wrong. (laughs) This is serious stuff. We're talking about whether or not you are really saved and going to heaven. All right, we are going to read Matthew 7. This is verses 21 through 23. Somebody missed my spot. All right, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Serious stuff. Why do so many enter through the wide gate? They're self-deceived. It's self-deception. Jesus goes from false teachers to false professions. False professions of faith. First we're warned about others, and now he warns us about ourselves. See, the original sin of pride blinds us, and we are biased towards our own preferences, if I can say it that way. We're biased towards our own preferences. We're self-deceived. Now, remember, Jesus isn't talking to the great unwashed here. He's talking to religious people, religious people who think they have it all together. That's who Jesus is talking about. So sticking with our theme of two here, we have two types of people. We have those who have just made a verbal confession. They may say, listen, I, you know, I believe that there is a God, and sure, Jesus is, is God's son. I believe that. That is a verbal confession only. They say, but they don't do. We also have those who have an intellectual knowledge of God. They know this, right? They know the Bible, and they say they do, but they don't do either. They say they have an intellectual knowledge of God. They know the scriptures. They may even be religious. They may even have religious activity, but they don't do what Jesus tells them to do. In Matthew 21, um, if we get there, uh, Jesus has just made his entry into Jerusalem. They call this the triumphal entry. He comes in on the donkey, right? He rides in, and he goes up to the temple, and the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes, start asking him questions. Now, there is some interesting symbolism here, because during Holy Week, uh, they would get all of the sacrificial lambs, and they would get them all in one place. And for a certain amount of time, the priests and the scribes had to actually inspect the lambs and make sure that they were spotless, that they were faultless before they could be offered for the sins of the people. And here we have Jesus during this week being inspected, being asked questions by the religious people. And he ends up being pure, being faultless, right? As they inspect him. And so they come to Jesus and they said, hey, who gave you the authority to do all these things? Who gave you the authority to teach? Who gave you the authority to heal and do miracles? And Jesus basically says, I'm not going to tell you. 
I'm not going to tell you because you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And then he tells them this story. This is Matthew 21, 28. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and he said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he said, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and he said the same. He answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. One son agreed verbally. Absolutely, dad, I'm on it. I'm going. But he didn't follow through. The other son, no way. Get lost, dad. I want to do what I want to do. But then later on, he was convicted. And he was obedient. It's all about the doing. It's all about obedience. That's pretty much what the whole book of uh, James is all about. I love the book of James, okay? But it's convicting. It's harsh. It's not a feel-good, tickle-your-ears kind of book. That's not what, John, what, uh, that's not what James is after. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You all believe that there's only one God and that Jesus is God. Good for you. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. But they are living in rebellion to God. They know that intellectually. They can say that. But they're living in rebellion to the king. So what's the difference between you and the demons? It better be obedience. It better be obedience to the Lord. Don't be hearers only, but be doers of the world. That's the expectation is that you are a doer of the word. When your father asks you to do something and you say you'll do it, he actually expects that you're going to go do it. So what lulls people into this self-deception? Uh, this might sound a little strange, but it is the false doctrine of assurance. The false doctrine of assurance. Now, there's a classic hymn, and Bob can sing it for us, but you've probably heard it. If you've been in church for any amount of time, it's called Blessed Assurance. I love that song. And it goes like this, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Blessed assurance. But you know what verse 2 starts out with? It starts out with this, perfect submission. Perfect submission to the Lord. See, the false doctrine of assurance, someone told them that all you have to do is raise your hand in a church service and repeat a prayer after the pastor. And you're assured. I think that those kinds of altar calls are a joke, honestly. I don't like them. Because it is an easy way of salvation. That's what people are looking for. They're saying, all right, you're saved. You got your ticket punched. You're on the plane. Now just try to behave until we leave. Okay? It's an easy form of salvation. It's quick. Jesus says easy is the wide path. That's the false way. The certification or the proof of your salvation is the Holy Spirit's conviction inside of you and the production of fruit outside of you. The Holy Spirit working on the inside and production of fruit on the outside. The Spirit's working inside of you, which causes fruit and good works to come out. That's why James says faith without works is dead. It can't save you. Faith... People get hung up on the word works because, you know, Paul talks about how works are like filthy rags if you're counting on it for salvation. So if you substitute the word works for obedience, maybe it makes a little more sense. Faith without obedience is dead. That's not the kind of faith that can save you. I will show you my faith by my obedience. And then guess what? There's going to be fruit externally that you can see in my life of what God is doing. Romans 8.14 says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you're being led, that means you're moving. 
You're not stagnant. There is growth. The word for the Holy Spirit in the, in the Greek, they said they wrote down pneuma. Pneuma means breath or wind. That's what that means. And wind or breath is not stagnant. If your breath isn't moving, then you are dead. Okay? So that is the word for the Spirit. The Spirit's moving. Jesus told Nicodemus, he says, you, can, you can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes, but you can see what it does. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11, he's very clear here. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we need to make our calling and election sure. The second reason people are lulled into this deception is a failure of self-examination. Failure of self-examination. People who simply wander through life either unconcerned or oblivious to their own sin. The reason that we're going to take communion here after service today is because in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul tells us that we need to examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's table. Before we eat the bread and drink the wine, or in our case, the grape, before you do that, you need to inspect your life. You need to make sure that you're pointed towards the Lord and there's nothing in your life that isn't supposed to be there. If you have willful disobedience that needs to be repented of and taken out of your life right then and there, because if you don't and you're just going through a religious activity and doing communion, he says you are actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself. If you're just doing it in a routine way, you'd be better for you not to do it at all. And when we examine ourselves, there are a couple questions we need to ask. First, is there any blatant sin in my life that I need to deal with, that I need to repent of? We're all sinners, and Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins. But if there's any willful rebellion inside of us, Jesus isn't going to hear us. God's not going to hear you. If you have will you, willful, blatant rebellion inside of you, if you're living in sin, he is not going to hear your prayer. In Zechariah 7.13, God says, As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. If the Holy Spirit's convicting you of something, and you're not addressing it, you're not dealing with it, he's not going to hear your prayer. He's not going to listen to a word you're saying. See, we have to blow up some of these wrongly held beliefs that have been promoted in the church for a long time, like God will always hear your prayers. No, he won't. He won't always hear your prayers. Not if you have something inside you that is living in rebellion to him. God told Jeremiah, he says, don't pray for these people, Jeremiah. Don't pray for them because they're stiff-necked. They're not going to listen to a word you say. In fact, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down there. I want you to preach your guts out, but they're not going to listen. That's a tough assignment. I want you to get up. I want you to preach, and I want you to preach again, and I want you to preach again, but they're not going to listen to a word you say. They will have no excuse because they have heard you time and time again, and they have chosen not to listen to your voice, so I am not listening to their voice. God says this to Jeremiah in 14, 12. Although they may fast, I will not listen to their cry. Although they may offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. You may give financially. You may afflict yourself. But God said, if you have rebellion in your heart, none of that means anything to me. I'm not listening to a word you say. So is there any willful rebellion um, that we need to get rid of? Second question we need to ask is this. Is my heart set towards God and his righteousness? Is it set towards God and his righteousness? Do I desire a relationship with him and sanctification? Now, sanctification just means that we've been set apart and that we have been cleansed and that we are being changed day by day more into the image of Jesus Christ. But for the person who isn't concerned about his 
present sins being cleansed, then they have reason to worry on whether or not their former sins have been forgiven. If you have no desire to come to the Lord for continued cleansing, sanctification, then did you ever really come to him for for salvation? Did you even really come to him at all for salvation? If you are unconcerned with being cleansed from your current sins. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. People who are dishonest, who are vengeful, who are hateful, who are unforgiving, who habitually practice sin, those people are not Christians, no matter what kind of experience they have had in their past that they might believe makes them saved. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such and so were such, and such were some of you. I think that's funny. He lists out all those sins. That basically covers the gamut, okay? And then he says, That's you guys. But he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Not a popular message. You're not going to hear this from a lot of places because what people want to hear is about easy salvation. And the big question that people ask when this topic comes up is, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Because really what they're asking is, can I live the way I want and still be saved? That's what they mean when they ask that question. If you really have to ask that question, then I have to wonder if maybe you're walking down the wide path. Because that's what people really mean. Can I I lose my salvation? Can you lose your salvation? No. If we could lose our salvation, we would. Okay? Because we're sinners. If we could lose our salvation, we would guarantee it. But if you're just doing religious things, if there's no evidence of salvation, if there's no fruit in your life, then I have to question whether or not you came to him for salvation in the first place. See, the hallmark of a disciple is obedience. It's not just praying a prayer. It's not just raising your hand. It's obedience. They have a false assurance, and there's no self-examination. Paul tells the church in Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The hallmark of a disciple is obedience. The third reason people can be lulled into self-deception is there is an inordinate concentration on religious activity. Now, this one sounds strange to us, and it's a real uh, pitfall for me personally because I am a doer, and I feel better about myself if I'm busy. But being busy isn't obedience. You can be busy doing religious things and be disobedient to what God is asking you to do. Now, doing religious things can be a sign of spiritual fruit in your life, but if it's not a result of wanting to get to know him better and to make him known, then those types of things can actually insulate you from the God that you say you're worshiping. That makes sense? If you are doing religious activity, but you're just doing it because you want to look good to other people and you want to feel better about yourself, that's not doing it for the right reasons. If you're doing it to please God and because he has asked us to serve and you want to make him known to other people, if you want other people to see God's fruit in your life, that's the right motivation to do it. But if you're just kind of um, assuaging your conscience, so to speak, because you feel guilty, then that's not the right way to do it. Jesus says that these people are claiming to have done miracles. These people have claimed to do miracles, that they have cast out demons, that they've healed people. That's incredible. That's a head scratcher for me when I read that, that these people have done miracles. I haven't done a miracle. These people have done miracles, but Jesus says, you're not real Christians. How is that possible if they're not real disciples? Three things I would suggest to you for how that can happen. First, 
God allowed them to do these miracles through his power. They were simply the tool. Okay? They did a miracle. God did a miracle, but they were simply the tool. There's a real interesting story in Numbers 22 and 20, 23. When the people um, of Israel, when they were coming out of Egypt and Moses was leading them out, and uh, they were going through the land of Moab. So they were around the region of Jericho, and it says that the stories of God, the things that he was doing, had gotten out to the surrounding nations. So they're hearing about that how this God had brought them out through many miracles. And the king of Moab goes up on this hill, and he sees the people, all of the Hebrews spread out in the valley. Valley, and they're around the city of Jericho, which is flat right now. And he's freaking out about them. He sends for a man named Balaam. Okay. He sends for a man named Balaam and Balaam is a prophet. He's kind of a mystery because we don't know where he came from. He's one of the first prophets that we get introduced to in the scriptures and we don't know much about him. Some scholars think that he is a descendant of Lot Abraham and Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and that he knew about Jehovah, and God had talked to him, and he became a prophet. Some say, no, he wasn't Jewish at all. He just happened to be, you know, a Gentile guy that God talked to. We don't really know for sure, but what we do know is that God talked to him, and Balak, the king of Moab, knew that because he says this. He says, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he who you curse is cursed. I know that. I know you have a relationship with a living God, and when you say things, it happens. And so he wants, to, he wants him to go up and curse the Hebrew people. He wants the curse so that they don't end up like Jericho. And he offers Balaam big sums of money to do this. He's like, here's, here's a divination fee. We want you to curse these people for us. So Balaam goes and talks to God. God says, nope, don't go with them. You're not going to go. These are my people. You're not going to curse my people. So Balaam goes back and he tells him, he's like, get out of here. God said, no, I'm not supposed to go. You can't curse these people because they're his. So they leave. And then they come back with an even larger amount. They come back with all this gold and silver. And they're like, hey, we need you. Are you sure? Because we really need you to curse these people. And he's like, look, I told you, God said, I can't go with you. But let me double check. How much gold and silver was it? Let me double check. So he goes back and he talks to God and God says, okay. God tests him. He said, you could go with him, but you're only to do what I tell you. You can only say what I tell you to say. So he goes with him. You've probably heard this story, uh, the story about Balaam and his donkey, right? Um, Balaam gets on his donkey, and because he's being a donkey, and he's riding to go see the king of Moab, and it says that as he's riding, they're going down this narrow road, which I think is funny, that they're going down a narrow path, and there's walls on both sides, and God sends an angel to warn him, because you know what's happening at this point? He's having wrong thoughts. He's having wrong motivations. He's thinking about this reward that he could get. And so the angel goes, well, he doesn't see the angel, but the donkey does. And the donkey freaks out and he veers off the path because the angel's standing there with a fiery sword. And it says that he crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. And so he screams, they get back into the road and the donkey does what donkeys do. It lays down and it won't move and it won't get up. And so Balaam starts to beat the donkey, starts to whip him. And all of a sudden the donkey starts talking says, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam's so ticked off, he just starts having a conversation with the donkey. He didn't even really think about it. He starts talking to the donkey. And all of a sudden, God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel. He was about to be slain because of his wrong motivations. And the angel says, you better get your head right, Balaam, because I'm sending you to do what I say, not what you say. You do what I say do. But when he gets there, instead of telling them no, again, instead of telling them no, this is what God said. He said, I tell you what, why don't you guys set up seven altars? We're going to sacrifice to the Lord. I'll go over here and see what he says. Like he may have changed his mind after the past two times that he asked him. And he goes up there and he gets up on this hill and he opens his mouth and a blessing comes out. And the king's like, what? I told you to curse these people. He's like, I told you, I can only say what God says I can say. I can only do that. I opened up my mouth and a blessing came out. And this happens seven times. Seven times. He goes up there to curse them and a blessing comes out. Unbelievable to me. But his motivation was all wrong. And the king's like, all right, 
no reward for you. You're not getting anything. Now, God used Balaam even though he was in sin. And some people say, well, Nathan, he didn't get the reward. Like, he didn't get the money. Listen to what it says in 2 Peter 2.15. He's writing to the church about false prophets, and he says this, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. How many of you know when your name comes up by Peter as something that you're not supposed to do, you're in a bad spot? He loved gain from wrongdoing. So what Balaam did is that I can't curse these people. But I tell you what, I know these people, they have a soft spot for rebellion, especially women and foreign gods. So I tell you what you do. Send some women over there. Send some of your false little gods. Send some idols. I think that might do the trick. And then he gets paid in the process, right? So he still gets what he wants from wrongdoing. Jesus says this in Revelations 2.14. He's talking to the church at Pergamum. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate the food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And what he's saying here is, some of you claim to be Christians, but you're supporting, you're promoting the things that are going to um, help people continue in a sinful lifestyle. You're enabling them. And we have that in our church today, don't we? We have lots of people who support or promote or enable people to stay in sinful lifestyles without being convicted about it. It's the way of Balaam. Another example was Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest, the guy who condemned Jesus to be crucified when they when they got Jesus and they brought him in there in the middle of the night, he prophesied. He said, it's going to be better if one man dies for the entire nation than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Okay, that was God's plan. He prophesied, but he was sinning in the process. This high priest who was fervent about the law, about keeping the rules, even though they were breaking multiple rules that night, he was in sin even though he was accomplishing part of God's plan. He thought he was doing God's work. He actually was, but he was sinning in the process. Be sure the religious activity in your life comes from a desire to know him better and for sanctification and to make him known. Because things that just make you feel better about yourself, trying to earn your own righteousness, those kind of works aren't going to save you. It's also possible that they did these things through the power of Satan. Now that sounds strange, but in Matthew 24, Jesus says that many false Christs will appear and do signs and wonders. They'll even try to deceive the elect if it were possible. In Acts 19, we read a story about uh, these seven sons of a guy named Sceva. And these guys were casting out demons. And they would go around all over the place and they would say, we command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out of him. That's what they would say. That's kind of weird. They didn't say in the name of Jesus. They said in the name of Jesus that that guy Paul preaches come out of him. And it worked for a little while until one day they come to a man and he's demon possessed and they start their same routine. And the guy, the demon starts talking from this man and it says, Jesus, we know, and Paul we're familiar with, but who are you? Wow. That would be freaky, wouldn't it? We know Jesus. I know that guy, Paul. Who are you? And it says that he overpowered them, beat all seven of them up, and they went running out into the streets, bleeding and naked. How cool would it be if a demon spoke to you and said, oh man, I know who you are. I've heard about you. We don't want any piece of you. (laughs) They knew Jesus and they knew Paul. They were casting out demons initially, but it wasn't because of God's power was because of Satan's, but they were being inspired by Satan to do it. That makes sense. It says, even the Antichrist, when he comes, will do many signs and wonders and will lead people astray. Be doing that in the power of Satan. Sometimes just because things work, people take that as God's approval and that he's behind it, but that's not always the case. In this case, wonders were being done by Satan, by the power of Satan. And that leads me to the fourth reason that people fall into self-deception. And that's why you might call a rationalization of fair exchange. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person, Nathan. 
My good deeds will balance out any of the bad deeds that I've done in my life, and I'll be able to merit my way into heaven. This is the deception that you can be good enough to get in. But there's no confession. There's no forgiveness of sins. And it's sin itself that separates us from God. It's not the excess or the imbalance of sin that keeps us out. See, we all have an incurable disease called sin. We don't need a Band-Aid. We don't need a shot. We need a complete cure from our sin disease. The Bible tells us, it says, A, there are no good people. Somebody says they're a good person. There are no good people. That's what the Bible says. And B, all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags if you're counting on them for salvation. If you think those are going to save you, they're like filthy rags. Paul did more of that than anyone else. And he said, none of that is worth anything if I'm trusting in that for salvation. It was Martin Luther who said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is always accompanied by fruit and good works and good deeds that we have been saved to do. In every case of self-deception, there's a failure to enter the narrow gate with repentance, with submission to the Lord, with humility and a desire for holiness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I said at the beginning, I think this is one of the scariest, most terrifying verses in all of the Bible. I say this because these people recognize who Jesus is. Okay, they acknowledge who he is supernaturally. They may even made a, a profession of faith. They may even be fervently religious, doing all kinds of activity, claiming to have done miracles and casting out demons. But they don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. Think back to the fruit. Is it genuine or is it simply grapes that have been hung over thorn bushes? right? Is the fruit genuine? In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end times and about his return. And he tells a parable about 10 virgins and a bridegroom. And in that day, it was not uncommon for a bridegroom to come back at night. So once the betrothal period happened, there was a year that went by until the actual ceremony happened. And they knew the season that it was going to happen, but they didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. They didn't know the day or the hour, okay, just like Jesus said. But they knew the season. And these 10 virgins went out. They had one job, one job. They were supposed to be ready to meet the bridegroom and to light the way to the celebration, Okay, and it says that five of them were wise. They had extra oil with them just in case. They had their lamps burning, but they brought extra oil just in case. But there were five foolish. They didn't bring any oil with them. All they had was what they're in their lamps. Getting ahead of myself. And in the middle of the night, they were waiting for the bridegroom, but he was later than they anticipated. A lot of people will say that Jesus' return is later than we anticipated. We thought he would have been back by now. People are saying that all the time. He could come back at any moment. And when the call went out that the bridegroom had arrived, they were to get up and go meet him and escort him into the feast. But it says that five of them didn't have any. And they begged for oil from the other five. And the other five said, we don't have enough. There won't be enough for us and you. You need to go to the marketplace and get some more oil. Well, how many... How many uh, people, do you think there are selling oil in the marketplace in the middle of the night? None. You, at that point, it's too late. You can't go and get any. And they missed out on the marriage feast, the celebration, because the door had been closed. And they ran up to it, and they banged on the door, and they said, Lord, Lord. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. I don't know you. And the door is closed. It was too late. Oil in the scriptures is a symbol or a picture of the Holy Spirit. It represents the Holy Spirit. If you have the Spirit inside of you and your flame is alive and you have fruit in your life, he knows your name. He knows who you are. He's going to let you in. You're going to be there before the door closes. But if the lamp's empty, then so are your words. If you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then it's just empty words. I don't know who you are. The next sentence gives us a crucial aspect of gaining entrance into the kingdom. The one who does the will of my father in heaven. In the parallel passage to Matthew's account in Luke 6, Jesus asks, 
Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? In John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, if you say you love me, you'll do what I ask you to do. Believing in the, in the Bible is synonymous with doing. Salvation and obedience are inseparable. You have to have obedience for salvation to happen, or it's just a false hope. And then the words that no one can bear to hear. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. People may have God's name in their mouth, but if they have rebellion in their heart, they're not one of his. They've been deceived. Basically, Jesus is saying, I never knew you as one of my disciples because you never knew me as your Lord and Savior while you were here on earth. G. Campbell Morgan says, the blasphemy of the sanctuary is worse than the blasphemy of the slum. It's just another way of taking the Lord's name in vain. If you're in the sanctuary and you're speaking, if you have his name in your mouth, but you have rebellion in your heart, it's just empty words. That's worse than people out there who are living godlessly because you have the truth inside of you. You could even say that, it, that mere profession is like a Judas kiss. What did Jesus say to Judas in the garden? He said, Judas, do you betray the son of man with a kiss? Are, are you about to turn your back on me, but you're giving the appearance of affection? That's what you're going to do? You're actually a worker of lawlessness, but you're kissing me? Now, Jesus knows, to give you some hope, <laughs> Jesus knows that we have failings. He knows that we sin. We are going to struggle with sin as long as we are in these earthly bodies. That's why he told us to pray, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive others that have forgiven, that have, you know, sinned against us. That's why he tells us to pray this way. And John writes this in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The very fact that we confess our sins and we seek forgiveness and we long for his righteousness is evidence enough that we belong to him. Does that make sense? If you are asking for forgiveness, you are seeking his righteousness. We're longing for that. That's evidence that we belong to him. Listen, it's not about perfection, it's about direction. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. Which direction are you headed? Now, a natural, uh, a natural reaction to a message like this is, Nathan, what do I need to do to assure my salvation? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm saved, to guarantee that I'm going to heaven? And that's good. We should ask those questions. We should. We should do the self-examination and make sure that our lives line up with what the scriptures say. Well, there was a group of men who came to Jesus and they asked that question. They said, what works of God do we need to be doing to be saved? And Jesus told him, he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he sent. The work is belief. We think of it as just a mental acknowledgement. There's that word again, believe. We think of it as just a mental acknowledgement. But what Jesus means is that there's action involved. If you believe, then do. You need to obey. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we're not saved by good works, but we've been saved for good works. So go do them so people can see that there's fruit in your life externally as evidence of your salvation. Now you might say to yourself, Nathan, I'm not really in a season where I can do the types of good works that I want to do. Either I can't do them physically or I can't do them emotionally, mentally, wherever I am in my situation of life, I'm not able to do it. How can I assure my salvation if I can't do the things that I think I should be doing good works-wise? How can I make my calling and election sure? I'm going to close with this. When we were on vacation, I started um, reading through. I just felt like God was leading me back to the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. And if you don't have that devotional, you should get it. Um, you can actually get it on your phone, and you can read the devotional every day. It's not very long. Um, if you want a hard copy, come and see me. You know, We'll get you one. But it's awesome. And he was steering me back to that. And this week, as I was reading it, I remembered this specific devotion, and this is what I'm going to close with. The key of the greater work. 
John 14, 12, I say to you, he who believes in me, greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Yet we think of prayer as some common sense exercise of our higher powers that simply prepare us for God's work. In the teachings of Jesus Christ, prayer is the working of the miracle of redemption in me, which produces the miracle of redemption in others through the power of God. The way fruit remains firm is through prayer. But remember that it is prayer based on the agony of Christ in redemption, not on my own agony. We must go to God as his child because only a child gets his prayers answered. A wise man does not. Prayer is the battle. It makes no difference where you are. However God may engineer your circumstances, your duty is to pray. Never allow yourself the thought, I am of no use where I am, because you certainly cannot be used where you have not been placed. Wherever God has placed you in whatever circumstance, you should pray, continually offering up prayers to him. And he promises, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Yet we refuse to pray unless it thrills or excites us, which is the most intense form of spiritual selfishness. We must learn to work according to God's direction. And he says to us, pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There is nothing thrilling or la- about a laboring person's work, but it is the laboring person who makes the ideas of the genius possible. And it's the laboring saint who makes the ideas of the master possible. When you labor at prayer, from God's perspective, there are always results. What an astonishment it'll be to us once the veil is finally lifted. All the souls that have been reaped by you simply because you have been in the habit of taking your orders from Jesus Christ. And this is the final sentence. We never enter into the kingdom of God by having our head answers, by having our head questions answered, but only by commitment. Or you could substitute the word obedience. We never enter the kingdom of God by having our head questions answered, but only by obedience. What is the hallmark of a disciple? It is obedience. So when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, some of them he's going to turn away. How can we be assured by being obedient to what the Father's asked us to do? That includes prayer. That includes doing good works, having the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of them. Those need to be evident in our lives so other people can see those. That is evidence of our salvation. That's how we make our calling and election sure. We need to know the scriptures if we don't want to be deceived. If we don't want to be deceived by others, and if we don't want to be self-deceived, we need to read what his word says and then take action. Believing is doing. Amen. Christ is my friend.